I wonder. Uh... Okay. Thank you all for coming this uh, beautiful day. I'm Rob Penzer. I'm the Associate Director of the Helix Center. I have some announcements before I introduce our esteemed participants. On Wednesday, November 5th, at Alumni Hall at NYU Langone Medical Center, uh, the Helix Center is co-sponsoring with the Jungian Psychoanalytic Association uh, a roundtable, Synchronicity and Other Matters. It's a continuation of a Helix Center roundtable of April 2014. And moderator and Jungian analyst Beverly Zabriskie is again joined by physicists Harold Altmanspacher and Edgar Choreri, Jungian analyst Joseph Cambry, and scholar Farzad Mahushian. This event is free and open to the public, but pre-event registration is required and is limited and may be obtained either through the Jungian Psychoanalytic Association website or in response to an email announcement you may have received with an embedded link to uh, registration. On Saturday, November 15th, join us here for our next Templeton Foundation-sponsored roundtable, Complexity and Emergence, with physicists Mark Alford and Zosia Krusberg, anthropologist Terence Deacon, philosopher Timothy O'Connor, physicist and systems biologist Raoul Rabadan, and astrobiologist Caleb Scharf. Then on Saturday, December 6th, we have French Surrealism, A Revolution of the Mind, a poetry roundtable with our Helix Center's Anne-Marie Levine, a poet and visual artist, moderating a discussion with art historian and literary critic Marianne Cause, author and translator Mark Polizotti, and poet Bill Savatsky. We continue in December on Saturday the 13th with the Templeton Roundtable, The Search for Immortality, with astronomer Chris Impey, poet, essayist, and senior editor at the New Republic, Adam Kirsch, professor of psychology, Sheldon Solomon, philosopher, Martin Hagland, and analyst and Buddhist, Polly Young Eisendroth. And now to today's roundtable, The Span of Infinity, which is part of the Templeton Foundation-funded series, Science and the Big Questions. If you could raise your hand as I introduce you. Alfred Scharf Goldhaber is professor in the C.N. Yang Institute for Theoretical Physics in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at Stony Brook University. He represents the second of three physics generations in his family. Collaboration with his parents led to what may have been the first mother-son publication in physics, something of great interest in the house of psychoanalysis here. <laughs> Collaboration with his parents led to what may, I'm sorry, among his research publications are articles on magnetic monopoles, elementary particles, nuclei, condensed matter, and recently, cosmology. He is co-author of numerous review articles. He enjoys hindsight heuristics, asking why people made discoveries later than they might have, understanding of which may better aid future discoveries. He and Robert Kreese of the Stony Brook Philosophy Department are co-authors of the just-released book, The Quantum Moment, focusing on the cultural impact of concepts from quantum mechanics. Joel David Hamkins is professor of mathematics, philosophy, and computer science at the City University of New York, affiliated with the College of Staten Island and the doctoral faculty at the CUNY Graduate Center. He earned his BS at Caltech and a CPhil and PhD from the University of California, Berkeley. He has held faculty positions at numerous distinguished universities throughout the world. Professor Hampkins undertakes research in mathematical logic, particularly set theory, with a focus on the mathematics and philosophy of the infinite, and has introduced several new infinity concepts. He has undertaken fundamental work in the theory of infinitary computability, introducing with colleagues Andy Lewis and Jeff Kidder, the theory of infinite time Turing machines, 
and he has made contributions to the theory of infinitary uh, utilitarianism. Recently, he's been thinking about infinite chess, which is chess played on an infinite chessboard, stretching without bound in every direction. Charles Liu is professor of astrophysics at the City University of New York's College of Staten Island and an associate with the Hayden Planetarium and Department of Astrophysics at the American Museum of Natural History. His research focuses on colliding galaxies, quasars, and the star formation history of the universe. He earned degrees from Harvard University and the University of Arizona and has held postdoctoral positions at Kitt Peak National Observatory and Columbia University. Together with co-authors Robert Arian and Neil Tyson, he received the 2001 American Institute of Physics Science Writing Award for his book, One Universe at Home in the Cosmos. More recently, he is the author of the Handy Astronomy Answer Book. He and his wife, who he says is way smarter than he is, have three children. Eric Steinhardt, <laughs> professor of philosophy at William Patterson University, grew up on a farm in Pennsylvania. He received his BS in computer science from Pennsylvania State University, after which he worked as a software designer for several years. Many of his algorithms have been patented. He earned an MA in philosophy from Boston College and was awarded a PhD in philosophy from SUNY at Stony Brook. He has taught in the philosophy departments at Dartmouth College and William Patterson University. His books have concerned Nietzsche, the logic of metaphor, mathematics, and life after death. Much of his work involves the application of new computational concepts to solve old philosophical problems. He loves New England and the American West and enjoys all types of hiking, biking, chess, microscopy, and photography. Without further ado, since we only have 90 minutes to talk about infinity, let's begin. I am the most applied person here, so I should speak last, really not first. When I think of infinity, I think of, uh, you know, traffic was infinitely bad on the way here. And that as I pulled up here, a parking spot opened up right in front of me. The odds of that happening are infinitely small. So That's my understanding true. of infinity is utterly wrong. You all should talk about it. But actually, I, I do want to make that point first. And as an observational astronomer, I will tell you that the universe as we see it is probably not infinite. Our ability to measure something is probably not infinitely precise. Uh, the universe is not infinitely old. And so in the practical, real sense, even for astronomy and astrophysics, infinity is not a concept that we can really understand. Well, how about infinitely many universes? That's something I cannot understand. Sure you can. One, <laughs> two, three, four, just keep going, man. That's the whole problem. We can't keep going forever. We can't. So we know that we can't already. It's already true. We so, can't see all the way out to the edge of the universe. We only have a cosmic horizon from which but we if they're, reach. If they're different universes, you wouldn't be seeing anywhere. Now you're throwing the if thing. See, so that's not real anymore. I'm a philosopher, man. That's my point. <laughs> I mean, but that's I don't have a telescope. But that's my point, so right? When, when I think about what you're saying, I mean, it's, it's a question about whether it makes sense to say that infinity really exists or not. It's a kind of ontological question. And apart from this kind of multiverse, uh, perspective in, in physics, then you're saying that the, the, in, there is no infinite in the physical world that we can observe. But this question about existence, I mean, it, it also comes up even in mathematical concepts of infinity. Right now, 
For example, there's many different kinds of infinity that are studied in, in mathematics and in set theory. And one of the main discoveries made by, by Cantor, right, was that there are different sizes of infinity. And we have all kinds of different infinity concepts, and we study them and understand them very well. But the subject is, is racked by this kind of uh, philosophical problem that we cannot prove that these infinities exist. And not only can we cannot prove it, we, we can prove that we cannot prove it. I mean, it goes into the Gödel incompleteness theorem and so on. So, so many of these infinity concepts are somehow inaccessible to us, even mathematically, not just physically, right? But nevertheless, many mathematicians want to assert, well, there is an inaccessible cardinal, or there is a wooden cardinal, or a supercompact cardinal, or an almost huge cardinal. I mean, there's this enormous hierarchy. You guys are too negative. So, so the question about whether it makes sense to say that these things exist or not is not just a physical question, but also a mathematical one. I mean, we, we can't really say for certain that they do. Well, I, I think as a non-mathematician, but who has, have many mathematician friends I admire. Is Let's see. Yeah, I see it's much too low. There you go. How is, how is this now? Is that good? Okay. Oh, really good. <laughs> I'm going to overwhelm you. <laughs> anyway, um, one of the things that was already indicated by what Joel was saying is that mathematicians have, in a certain sense, a larger world of reality than ordinary people like me, because mathematics is, has all sorts of objects in it that you cannot get at the corner grocery store, <laughs> but which you can describe in enormous detail, you can follow in many, many ways. And so the mathematics world has a lot of extra things in it beyond what we can see ourselves. One obvious thing is higher dimensional spaces. We see three space dimensions and that's it. Then you can say, okay, today we have space time, so that's four. Well, that's not necessarily that many, but uh, for the world of mathematics, there are very interesting things, for example, to say about seven space dimensions, very special properties. And a lot is known about those properties. I don't know it, but I know that there are people who do, including somebody who's a, a near neighbor of mine in the office at Stony Brook. Um, so mathematics has this richer sense of reality and in that sense of reality, infinity of various sorts can be manipulated in a variety of ways. For example, classifying degrees of infinity. And despite the fact that there may be certain things one can't prove, uh, I've never heard of an actual case where somebody said, whoops, I came up against the Gödel incompleteness <laughs> theorem, and I couldn't go any farther, and I wasn't able to figure out what happens. That just doesn't happen. If, well, if it does, let me, can you, yes, can I please. Take, let me take issue with something you just said earlier, yeah. which is that, say, these higher dimensional spaces can't be uh, realized physically. I mean, I can show you a seven dimensional space r right here with this bottle, because if we think about how could I position this bottle in space, I mean, I could put it like this right there, or I could put it over here facing that way, or I could turn it. So that the center of the bottle can be anywhere. That's three dimensions right there, just for where is the center. And then which direction is it pointing in? That's another three dimensions that I need to specify. And then I can rotate it, yes. So, so this, is, uh, uh, this is seven dimensions, right? But I don't think that's, that's not infinite. 
Seven. Well, it's not infinite. But the but point is that we're not limited. I mean, in our physical world, we're not right. just limited to this sort of plain understanding. But right? I think you guys, in both physics and, I mean, mathematics expands a little more than physics, and so does philosophy. I mean, we have to ask questions about why this universe exists at all, and why does it have the structure that it has at all. And answering some of those kinds of questions tends to lead us towards deeper mathematical and infinite ideas. So if we start to wonder, not just physically where did our universe come from, a Big Bang or something like this, but why is there anything at all? Uh, why does anything with any structure exist at all? Uh, why does mathematics work at all in physics, uh, especially when the mathematics seems to involve, at least in the background, various kinds of, in, of infinities? And so for the philosopher, certainly reality isn't limited to the physical world either. And I think, obviously, uh, philosophers take different opinions on whether or not God exists or whether or not there are uh, other kinds of infinite structures, uh, perhaps infinite minds that maybe aren't divine. But uh, infinity has played a very large role in philosophical thinking about objects and structures that may be much larger, infinitely larger, than the physical universe, and which the physical universe would require in order to exist at all. So I, so I think you guys are a little too, too uh, skeptical. Well, you mean skeptical in the sense of saying uh, we don't know if there can be such a thing as infinity, and either one of you can say we do know there is such a thing as infinity. What, what kind of skepticism are you talking about? Well, I think that uh, the skepticism, I guess, would be to say that uh, Probably, okay, you can't see infinite structures through a telescope or a microscope or touch them or find them in a, a particle collider. But one might wonder why uh, the mathematics that describes the particles in the collider works or why uh, the telescope can be pointed at all. And so it seems like physics presupposes, my argument would be that physics presupposes infinity, even if our universe happens to be finite. I, I don't quite see the presupposition, except in the sense it's certainly true that physicists are very free about thinking about infinite space or possible infinite energies and so forth. They certainly can formally consider them, but a crucial aspect of the formal consideration is that when they're all finished, the infinity should drop out and they should have a set of finite quantities they can talk about. So they can use it definitely as a conceptual aid and I think that's what you were saying philosophers do too. Um, but that, that's a somewhat different thing. Yeah. Um, I wanted to just add one other thought which is infinity Oh, I wanted to add two other thoughts. The first one was... Why stop there? <laughs> I'm not... I mean, you could go... I'm not promising. <laughs> I mean, you could go infinite here, you know? The, the first thought was, uh, I was told, I'm sure all of us were told, uh, don't prepare for the session. And I was thinking about that later, and it's a little bit like when somebody is saying, I have trouble going to sleep, and he's told there's a perfect way to go to sleep. You just don't think of an elephant. Of course, once you've been told that, <laughs> you're stuck. But in a similar way, uh, with any topic, but particularly with this one, if you're told don't prepare, nevertheless, the mental processes, subconscious or not, are going along 
and undoubtedly are going to give a different result from what would have happened if we'd received the letter of invitation and by a special helicopter, we were jetted in here within a few <laughs> minutes after having received the invitation, I think he would have gotten a very different result. So don't prepare is a, is a slightly... That sounds like a very good idea. So that was one thing I wanted to say. Another thing is <clears throat> that uh, infinity, if you take it literally going back, means just something that doesn't end. And we all know about things that don't end. The most simple and beautiful perfect example, I think, is the edge of a circle. Imagine a tunnel that's in a circular direction goes all the way around, and you're going in it, and, you, and the edges are very smooth and so forth. There's no telling when you're supposed to stop or start, um, and so, therefore, you can go on forever. I don't know who's doing this. No, I don't think so. Ah. <laughs> we all got it. Yes. Don't know if we're still on the air, but in any case, we're not making a lot of extra noise. Uh, so, infinity as endless is something we definitely can all experience, and we can conceive of infinity in the sense of going around that circle an infinite number of times, but we cannot perceive it, we cannot achieve it. So it's something we can think about, we can conceive of it, uh, and that is very valuable. I think it's one of the great things that has come with modern thinking, I don't know whether the cavemen had it at all or not, that they could imagine things which they don't actually see, don't actually experience, and by manipulating them in their minds, they could get orientation about things that are very important to them. And so infinity may or may not exist in quotes in the sense that one can somehow or other prove that there is an infinity of dimension of the universe or something of that sort. That may not be true, but it nevertheless is an extraordinarily useful concept which has been going on at least since the days of the Greek philosophers, probably before that. I'm not sure that cavemen didn't have ideas about infinity. But uh, one of the most famous early examples of somebody so to speak, spuriously using infinity was the famous paradox of Zeno. The idea there was, in its simplest form, uh, you are trying to reach a certain target. On the way, you have to go halfway. After that, you have to go another halfway. After that, you have to go another halfway. And there is an infinite set of points you have to pass, which means you couldn't possibly ever get to the destination. And sure the, you could, well, and you do. Well, of course, but the original form of that was talking about uh, a hare which has fallen asleep and now is trying to run and catch up with a tortoise. And that was the example in which Zeno liked to express this. So there's another and, form, though, of yeah. Zeno's paradox, which says, I mean, in that form, the conclusion is that you can't ever arrive there because before you arrive there, you have to get halfway there, but before, yes. you know, and, and before that, yes. you'd have to get halfway there again and so on. And you can't do all these infinitely many things, therefore you cannot arrive. Right. But with Zeno, one of his original formulations was that you cannot even ever start. And so it's often described under the phrase, all motion is impossible because right. before, before you 
before you get all the way there, you have to have gotten halfway there. But before you get halfway there, you have to have gotten halfway to halfway. And before you do that, you have to have gotten halfway to that, and so yes. on. And so, in fact, you have to, you can't even ever start, right? This is, I think, a, a, yeah, a, a more compelling way to describe. <laughs> well, so. and that's not, but I don't think that those things, the, those are old, those are old things. I mean, right now we know we have the mathematics that's used in physics. It's, it's interesting to apply that mathematics to the mind. Uh, it's very interesting to apply it to larger concepts. Uh, uh, and one doesn't have to be religious to think about infinitely great uh, beings that could think infinitely great thoughts and have infinite memories, an infinite computer. Well, you find these things in, in literature. You find them in you know, Borges and things, and people who have described infinite structures that, that uh, are combinatorially infinite and that contain all possibilities. Now, Leibniz talked about the Palace of the Fates, which was a, an infinite structure, like an infinite hotel, and every room contained another possibility. Right? And there are infinitely many possible universes, and so infinitely many rooms in this hotel, or this palace, as he called it. And it's fascinating to think of what modern math enables us to, how it enables us to approach those ideas and those structures when you think about the possibility of infinite computers that you've worked on. And those are, I mean, it, would, it strikes me that infinity is always the best bet. You know, <laughs> if I had to bet if there is, if I was told that there's something that exists, and I had to say, is there, is there one of it? Are there many of it, or are there infinitely many? I think picking infinitely many would be the most reasonable thing, because otherwise, you're, yeah? Mathematically, sure. But in reality, this is the thing we're talking about. I think Fred brought it up very, very well. I had not even thought until just now, as an example of my poor preparation, uh, <laughs> that, that the infinite loop in computer science is truly actually an example of infinity. But you can't actually run an infinite loop an infinite number of times unless you have an infinite amount of time, which we don't think we do because there might be more infinite amount of time in the future. But in the past, we know that the universe began, that time as we understand it scientifically, if we think science actually is true, our particular universe started at a time t equals zero. So if you want to think about stuff that is not real, go ahead, go for real. it. not real, you just mean not physical. And, and maybe I should be more correct. Or, or not yes. in our universe. Not in our universe, not that's, that's an physical. Let, I can believe let that. Let me respond I'm cool. to what sure. Charles said. Because so, I think this question of existence is really quite fascinating. I mean, in mathematics, we make existence claims all the time. You know, there is a number x such that if you square it, it's equal to 2. So what does it really mean, though, to, to say there is a number such that? Well, maybe you mean something like, well, if you, you know, write down 2 point, whatever it is, so some number between 2 and 3, you can write down more and more digits. And when you square that, you get a number that's really, really close to 2. If it's a little bit too small, then you're going to get 1.99 something. If it's a little too big, right? So we can sort of zero in. Well, what do we really mean when we say there is a number x such that when you square it, you get 2? And I think it's a highly problematic thing. And so mathematics is full of these kind of existence claims. There is a topological space that's, you know, Lindelof, but, but not hereditarily Lindelof, or whatever kind of existence claim you're making in mathematics. What does it really mean to say that something exists? So there's this subject called set theory, which is trying to answer this question and provide a kind of foundation for these kind of mathematical existence claims, you know, to, to set all of these kind of existence claims in mathematics in one system. And, uh, uh, and, and I think it's succeeded uh, 
fairly well. And, and if you think about it, you realize that actually the physical existence claims are even more problematic. I mean, we can see there's this table here, and I can knock on it, and it feels solid, and so on. And, and so it, it, it seems that there is a table here. But what does it mean for something to exist physically? It's completely mysterious. I mean, it, it's related to the that philosophical right question. About that. Why is there That's something weird. rather than nothing? That's not the question I'm talking about. That's just the question, why is there something? But what does it mean to exist physically? I don't think you have any idea. You cannot give an account of it. You can observe the moons of Jupiter and so on and say, well, they exist and there are really moons orbiting Jupiter. But what does it mean for something to exist physically? It's completely mysterious. And in comparison, in mathematics, if I say, well, there's a set containing the empty set and that's it and no other members, we can give a pretty coherent account of what that means. I think much more coherent than any kind of explanation of what it means for something to exist physically. OK. Then, yeah, you guys are if on we, the hook now. Uh, no, Joel makes excellent points. Uh, if we posit that the existence of something called infinity is just as valid as the existence of this table, okay, then please educate me. <laughs> I can tell you a table is this round thing on which several bottles of water and several cough drops are sitting. What is infinity? Can you educate me, for example, of Georg Cantor's original idea of many different kinds? Can you give me, give me three or four different kinds of infinities and which kind is actually more infinite than the other kinds? Sure, he uh, can do that. Yes, yes. If, if you could do that, then we can start asking ourselves how real really is infinity. I won't interrupt you because I know it's very hard to do. <laughs> well, but once well, but you say that, time. Yeah. it might. <laughs> because, for example, your, 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 your example, the square root of two is excellent. Um, the square root of two is a number that if you multiply it with itself, you'll get exactly two. Okay, but you can't write it down. You can spend from now uh, till 10,000 years from now writing on a piece of paper all the digits that come after the decimal point. One point four one four two one three five. Ba da da da. You can get arbitrarily close to two but you will never actually reach to. So how can you say this number exists if you can't even write it down in its entirety? So from that, please educate me because I would like to know how I can reconcile these realities. Well, I mean, one thing you can say, what Cantor proved, right, is that the, 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 the infinity of the natural numbers, so the natural numbers are the numbers that start with zero and, and go zero, one, two, three, and so on. And most people feel that they have a pretty good sense that that's a coherent concept, a description of natural numbers. Piano wrote down the axioms of the piano of the natural number system, and it's involving induction and so on. So this is the size of this set is one kind of infinity. And then there's another kind of infinity that Cantor looked at, which is the, the infinity of the continuum. So this is the number of points, say, on the number line. If you think that every point on a number line uh, can be described with a real number by its coordinates. So it's, it's a little bit less than two and a half and more than two and so on. And you can give it, say, its, its digits, you know, 3.14159 or so, you know, whatever the number happens to be on the number line. So this is a, the infinity of the, of the continuum or of the real numbers. And what Cantor proved is that these are different infinities. So there are simply more real numbers than there are natural numbers. And the proof is not difficult because what does it mean to say that two infinities are the same? Two infinite sets have the same size? Well, it should mean that 
that, that you should be able to match them up. There should be a kind of correspondence between them. So, so suppose that we could make a list. I mean, the natural numbers can be put on a list. You know, there's the zero, one, two, three, and so on. So if we could put all the real numbers on such a list, suppose we had a list that it included all real numbers. Now I'm, I can describe a new real number which is not on the list, and that will be a contradiction then, proving that it was impossible to have all the numbers on the list. And the new real number that you make is just the one so that in the first digit, it's different from the first number on the list, and in the second digit, it's different from the second number on the list, and so on. So this is called the diagonal argument because these digits right. uh, go on the diagonal. So what Cantor proved is that for any proposed list of real numbers, you can calculate a number that is not on that list. And therefore, it's impossible in principle to put all the real numbers onto one list. And so it's a bigger infinity. Because if they were the same size, you could put it on the list. That's what it would mean to have the same size. Right? But of course, he proved it. It's not just that there's two infinities. They keep going. I mean, a more general version of the argument shows, in fact, you always get bigger and bigger infinities. And the number of infinities is bigger than any given yeah. infinity. It's not just that there's finitely many. Well, let's challenge. I want you to, I mean, you guys raised the key question about infinity and about this, the existence issue. And just let me go back to both of you. And I don't I want to talk much here because I want to raise a thing. Yeah, I mean, because if we ask you guys, Joel, Joel asked about what, what does it mean to exist when you say physics, physicists say exists. And it starts out with something that's very elementary. And, and it seems like, yeah, I can touch it. But that's, of course, not what you mean. And as soon as we start to ask you, you'll tell us about, you know, particles. You'll tell us about molecules and atoms. And you say, well, Wave what's an atom? Or some kind of well, but it'll keep like going. It gets worse, right? Because we'll say, well, what's an atom? And you'll say, well, yeah, there's some electrons and protons. And I say, oh, that's great. What's a, what's a neutron? And you'll say, well, there's some quarks. And, and I'll say, well, what's a quark? And it, as we go further down in all this, it just dissolves into more and more equations. And I say, well, like, what's a, what's a quark? And you say something, well, there's this field, and there are these quantizations of the field, and there's going to be these, these incredibly complex mathematical operators that you know, transform the field in certain ways into itself. And so physical existence, uh, to get back to Joel's point, because I think Joel's right about this. I mean, I think so physical existence really ultimately seems to dissolve into mathematical existence. And if you're, if you're committed to that, then you might as well just go with the whole Cantorian <laughs> set theoretic hierarchy and say, well, the physical universe is just one small structure in this enormously large structure. Because whatever, whatever if, as a philosopher, I want to know about existence, the clearest accounts of existence, I think Joel is right, the clearest accounts of existence are the accounts that you find in set theory. I mean, those guys don't have any confusions about well, I the, wasn't the claiming data. it's the clearest. I'm just saying it's more clear to me. Well, I'll it say it's the clearest. Such a kind of simple, for example, some kind of number theoretic assertion that there's a, uh, you know, an odd prime bigger than five or something. Okay, so it's pretty clear that there is one, you know, seven, for example, is an odd prime bigger than five. And so this is an existence coming in mathematics. It is clear, and it seems more clear to me than any kind of physical assertion about, I mean, what it means to say that something physically exists. I just have no idea what that means, and I'm not really satisfied by your account or any account that's talking about even atoms and so on, because I just still don't know what it means to exist. Yeah, and I'm, I agree with, with him. I mean, it's not clear what it means to say that without using the mathematics, and once you've used the mathematics, then the mathematicians win. 
right? I, I mean, let me let me try to to wield Fred as my instrument of redemption here. He just said, from the physics point of view, that you can have an infinite something like a wave function, but eventually it collapses down to something finite, like a quantum number that then defines the state of something that we would call a particle that exists. Perhaps the right way to think about infinity is to accept that infinity exists, but it exists to serve the finite. That we are satisfied, and we must be satisfied with what is finite and what uh, is tangible, but to explain it to a satisfactory level, we need to resort to something which is not tangible and finite, that is the infinite. Uh, Fred's quantum mechanical or general you know, particle physics, shall we say, expertise can address that much better than my astronomical astrophysical expertise. It's interesting. You, you said that I had said something which I didn't remember saying. So, <laughs> so instead of trying to follow up exactly Sorry on that. Sorry about that, if I misunderstood. Uh, um, if, instead of trying to follow up exactly on that, I want to talk about an interesting thing people have been saying just now. Uh, you have uh, tables made of molecules, made of atoms, and the atoms have this in them and that in them. And, uh, and that reminds one of the, of the old saying, big fleas have little fleas upon their backs to bite them. And so it goes on and on ad infinitum. But <clears throat> But in the, in the case of the world the physicists have been trying to explore, there have been two issues over the last 50 years, I would say, that have come up in elementary particle theory. One is that people didn't see how the elementary particle theory could be completed. Uh, how, as you went to smaller and smaller distance scales and tried to describe what was going on, you could get a consistent picture. Um, in fact, if you tried the ideas that you had, they didn't seem to quite work. And so uh, there is something now called the standard model. And many of you may have heard that there was one remaining thing to put into the, uh, into the very center of the standard model, the Higgs particle. And the Higgs particle was apparently found at CERN uh, last, uh, in two years ago by now. Uh, so that was... Apparently or was found? Well, apparently, meaning the general opinion, uh, which I would share, is it was found. And the interesting thing is whether one should or shouldn't have been surprised. Uh, but in any case, it was found. And it completed the standard model. Now, here's the problem. The standard model is now complete. No exceptions of any sort have been found to the predictions associated with the standard model. But according to our best way of doing mathematical analysis of the model, it isn't complete. There is something missing about it. Well, it might turn out that that isn't true. You know, that that's just what it is, and we won't find anything more, uh, because there isn't anything more. Uh, if so, that would be an end to this big fleas and little fleas, uh, an end which would surprise many of us, but it's conceivable. Now, turning it around the other way, there are many people who have suggested that something called string theory has the, uh, the tools that you could use to provide a basis for the standard model. And string theory ran into a big problem. 
uh, which didn't involve infinity, but it involved a very large number, uh, something like um, the, exp the natural exponential of 500, which is pretty big. Uh, and so people said, well, this is a disaster. This theory isn't really very well defined if there are 500 different, e to the 500 initi different initial conditions you could put on it. So um, then, then other people said, ah, this explains everything because the reason we have a world where one of these conditions was chosen is because if we're here and we can observe our world, then that must be the one that it was. And other than that, it was a completely random event. And somewhere or another, there may be an infinity of other universes which are totally different and which don't have people, but maybe do have giraffes. Um, so the, the, the interesting thing is the problem that was posed was of a very large but still finite number that somehow said, well, how can you possibly deal with such a big number in your theory? Uh, but it wasn't even infinite at all. Uh, it could have been that string theory would have turned out to have an infinite number of possible solutions. But at least as now understood, that isn't the case. And that large, large number was deemed to be already too large. And people said, oh, what's going to happen next? Well, at the moment, there is absolutely zero evidence that anything is going to happen next. And that maybe there is some different logic which we haven't quite yet understood, which will say the standard model really is complete and consistent once we've added that extra feature. If that were the case, we could say that if it happened, I'm not saying it will, we could say elementary particle physics has been pursued to the end, and the end was not infinitely far away. That is at least a, a possible thing that could have happened, and it wouldn't be the first time somebody has suggested something like that. Because if you go back to Lucretius with his hard little particles, um, then the way he looked at it and the way Newton later looked at it very explicitly was there was no way of breaking these particles apart. So maybe there is something like that, and we just haven't quite realized it yet. Well, why would that? I mean, the question that I would still ask is, even if our universe happens to have this logical kind of finitude, that's no argument that there aren't other universes. And I would, I would ask uh, you the question, um, you said maybe we should be satisfied with the finite. And I am completely unsatisfied with the finite. <laughs> I think that, I, think that uh, I mean, some mathematicians and philosophers have said that, you know, it's not infinity that's weird, it's the finite that's weird. Because from the perspective of infinity, the finite looks badly broken. And so why, why when I think of, if I think of things like, I, I hear all this, well, uh, we, can't, we can't get there, we can't go that far, we can't go around the circle infinitely many times because I guess my life will come to an end. Now, there certainly are lots of philosophers and theologians who have said, well, no, it won't. Uh, there are people who uh, argue either for infinitely long lives, immortality, there are people who argue for even uh, an infinite sequence of finite lives, maybe through reincarnation, and that wouldn't have to be in this universe. It could be Buddhists and Hindus, as well as Western thinkers, have argued for a plurality of universes with a plurality of incarnations. 
which seems to me to be far more satisfying than the messy little finite life that I have. <laughs> so even if, even if I'm delusional, and, which is almost certainly true, um, that wouldn't refute the fact that I'm not satisfied. I mean, if, even if all I get for dinner is green beans and I don't get any ice cream, that doesn't mean I'm satisfied with it. With and I know mom and dad are going to say, uh, Eric, you should be satisfied, but, but I'm not satisfied. <laughs> I still want, you know, and it seems like my hopes and desires, which has often been expressed religiously, uh, and even if that's false, it's still the hope is true. It's still true that I have a hope for a kind of infinitely rich life and a kind of infinite richness of meaning. And, and the torture, of course, of being human is that even if I'm finite, I can conceive of that. And that variability to conceive of an infinity beyond the, the, the petty little finitude of my life is exactly the itch that makes me, that I need to scratch, and it's why I'm not satisfied. I love that, Eric. I do. Um, <laughs> it, is, it is completely correct. I, I do have a piece of paper with me later if we have time to share it. Just the, the one point that makes me agree with you completely but the only one, the finite thing that makes me agree with you uh, about the, the infinity and, and thinking about infinity, the dissatisfaction with the finiteness or the finitude of your own existence. And this is, this is my sort of very practical, experimental scientist kind of reply. I think that there is so much in this finite universe to give us satisfaction for an indefinite period of time that we don't need infinity to go any further in seeking satisfaction. In other words, infinity is almost a construct designed to give us humans a little bit of comfort in what otherwise would be a depressingly limited existence. We don't need an infinite number of things that we could do. Uh, 10 to the power of 100 is enough, really. Uh, we don't need to live an eternal life. When we die, death, of course, is frightening to many of us. It is the clear and finite end to the existence that we kind of know of ourselves. Even though, of course, when we were babies, our existence was very different from when we were children, from when we were adults, from when we were elderly. It all changes and it keeps changing. It is variety, not infinite but still really rich and very cool. And yet, if we're still concerned and worried about that, we say eternal life, infinite existence, uh, it, reincarnation over and over again, re-existence until all infinity. It gives us comfort, but there is no need for it if we're merely satisfied that the amount of finite ver variation or cool stuff in our universe will satisfy for all intents and purposes, and maybe even more than that, our existences and our meaning. Okay, um, I, I think I recalled Rob mentioning uh, that Dr. Chris Impey will be here in a program a couple of months from now. Uh, I'll tell you now, Professor Impey was on my thesis committee in graduate school, and a wonderful, brilliant, thoughtful man he is. And that's one of the things he says in one of his books. Uh, life is short. 
right? It's, it's fleeting, but it is up to us to give it meaning. And so if we wish to use infinity as a way to give us meaning, thinking, feeling confident that we're gonna live forever in one form or another, before, after, during, in paradise or in purgatory or in Hades uh, or whatever, that's cool, I'm cool with that, but we don't need it. I am satisfied with all the other possibilities that we already know could exist, and that enough is, that is enough to give me meaning and, and scratch that itch which I'm worried But he bothers me. Why? <laughs> because... Let, let me jump in here because yeah. I want to... Okay. <laughs> no, I want to say why you bother me first and then you can do that. <laughs> because he can... Mathematicians can do this. If I can't... If I see you say, ask me, what's the biggest number? And I said five. I'd be like, cool. Tell but me about four. Let's and go you'd be like, oh, four is no. beautiful. I, said, let I me can jump draw in. four but this Let him way. do this. What, what, you know, what, what you need to live your fulfilling life and what there is. These are two different things. Maybe there is much more than what you need. And I mean, as uh, sort of my uh, kind of personal way of, of interacting with these ideas is always just to explore whatever is interesting and fun and curious. And if uh, there's an idea on the table, then I want to investigate it and see where it goes. And so if there's some kind of infinity over here, then I want to look at it, infinite chess or infinite computation or whatever it is. And so, for example, you mentioned e to the 500, and you just mentioned 10 to the 100, which is a number also known as a Google. And so I'm reminded of this contest that Doug Hofstetter ran a number of years ago. And I, I recently was in Shanghai and ran an experiment of the same kind at Fudan University with the students. And the contest was, um, so we announced a week before the event uh, that everyone should come and write down on a 3 by 5 index card the biggest number that they can. Just describe the biggest number. You could write, you know, use a description. There was a limit. You couldn't use more than 100 characters, you know, standard character set or something. And so what's the biggest number you can describe on a 3 by 5 index card? Well, you could say 10 to the 100. You could say the number of grains of sand in the Sahara Desert, which is actually, I think, a much smaller number than 10 to the 100. Um, or, uh, so if you, if you take this 10 to the 100, it's also known as a Google, right? And so one can get much, much bigger numbers than that. Say, a Googleplex is, means 10 to the Google. So a, a Google is 10 to the 100. That's a one. If you write it in ordinary notation, it's a one with 100 zeros after it. You know, you could write it. It would take you maybe two or three minutes to write all those zeros down. You could, you could write this number down and say, that's a Google. There it is. You could never maybe count up to a Google. This would take way too long. But a Googleplex, right? This is a one with a Google number of zeros after it. You couldn't even write this one down. It's incomparably larger. And you can write down other big numbers, like, for example, well, a Google bang is a Google, a Google factorial, right? So it means a Google times a Google minus one times a Google minus two and so on. So it's, a, a mind-bogglingly huge number, right? So does anyone know which, which is bigger, a Googleplex or a Google Bang? Does anybody I think know? a Googleplex is bigger. Yes. I'm, so I'm not sure. A, a Google Bang is bigger because a Googleplex has a Google number of uh, oh, uh, tens right. in right. it, and Absolutely. a Google Bang has it's the yes. same number of terms, but right. many of them are much bigger than 10. Right. So, okay, well, then you could also... Say, what's bigger, a, a Google bang, plex, bang, bang, or a Google plex, bang, 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 plex? Or, you know, you have a kind of vocabulary for these referring to these enormous numbers. They're absolutely finite, but these are mind-bogglingly huge numbers. There's also a Google stack, which means 
10 to the 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 10, and so on, a Google number of times, right? And so this number is just really enormous. But you can just say a Google stack, it easily fits on a three by five index card, right? So if I write this number, then. So one other thing about the, the contest that, that Hofstetter did, and which I did in Shanghai also, was that we announced a prize, and the base of the prize was a million dollars. So whoever would write on the biggest number would get the prize. The prize was not a million dollars, the base the, the actual prize awarded was a million dollars divided by <laughs> the winning number. And so, uh, <laughs> but the winning number was- The winner had to pay you a Google dollar. <laughs> yeah. So, so I made sure to bring, and I discussed it with the organizers in Shanghai in advance. I brought a few shiny pennies because we announced that the prize would be, you know, divided, uh, rounded upward to the nearest cent. And, <laughs> and so the prize was just one cent because people submitted these enormous numbers. But it's a lot of fun to think. I mean, with regard to what you're saying, our capacity for describing these big numbers. So with very little space and with very little sort of short vocabulary, we can describe enormous, finite numbers. And this kind of project, I think, is carried on into the infinite. And this is what the set theorists are doing when they study the large cardinals and so on. We're describing these enormous infinities that are mind-bogglingly huge, uh, but yet are amenable to our reason and our ability to manipulate them. And it's a lot of fun. Maybe we don't need them to be happy, as Charles says. But anyways, I'm totally interested in them, and I want to figure out what's going on with them. And, and this does lead, in fact, to the piece of paper that I did prepare, Joel. And, and again, just like with Eric, I agree with you that thinking about these things and examining them is a great thing. So did Albert Einstein, actually. But the and, very fact and, that and, we can think about these things suggests to me that we have a capacity to exceed or transcend the finite. Sure, if At you least want. in the capacity. But then that means that there's something within me, within even my finitude, that points beyond itself to the infinite and tells me that I cannot be entirely finite. There's something about me that can grasp these infinities. Uh, even mentally, that's fine, because I'm a thinking thing. And so... The fact that we can study these infinities, you know, if, if one tried to conceive of eternal life and it just, it, you just drew a blank. Because you say like, I, I don't know, is it seven? Is it, is it, maybe it's 50 years or maybe 123 years, that's it. But anyone can conceive of, even in the simple word of, you know, forever, going on forever. And that's even a very simplistic concept of the infinite. So the fact that I can conceive of the infinite uh, suggests to me that there's something within me that isn't satisfied with the finite because there's something in me that points beyond my own finitude. And I can conceive of there being infinitely many universes beyond this universe. However, even if this universe is only finite. And so I'm always suspicious and I'm happy to think that I might be wrong in thinking that maybe, maybe my capacity to think of the infinite is somehow a delusion. I lie to myself all the time in other respects. Why not lie to myself this time? Well, it's something I want, right? I, I, I think I'm, you know, I'm good looking and, you know. <laughs> well, you're not lying there, Eric. You're good. Well, you know, <laughs> you, you, don't, yeah, you don't know what's going on in here. You could be very confused. So why not, so okay, it could be delusional, but if it were, it's not like the other delusions that I have. It's not delusional at all. 
it is totally okay that you like to think about infinity and thus you conclude that you, there is some part of you which is infinite. I'm cool with well, that, some but that's actually, that's actually a finite thought process. You have finished it off. In other words, you have become satisfied with the fact that there are parts of you that you will never understand. I'm not Isn't satisfied that with that. Well, it then, bothers me. Then you can go forward and keep thinking about it, just as Joel is describing, which is awesome, which is the great thing about life. And so this is the one thing that I wanted to mention, and, and this is our pal Albert Einstein. Okay, in 1932, he was asked, well, 1930, he was asked to write something about what he believed about religion and science and so forth. Over the next intervening years, it got a little bit more codified. Eventually, someone actually recorded on some records what he believed, and he, he wrote it down. And the last paragraph of this, we call it a credo, right, that explains what it is. He, he says, and, and I tried to translate this from the German as accurately as I can with the help of Julie, who is downstairs. Um, uh, and, and it goes kind of like this. The most beautiful and deepest experience a man can have is the sense of the mysterious. It underlies and grounds religion as well as all serious efforts in art and science. He who has never had this experience seems to me, if not a dead person, then is at least a blind person. To sense that behind anything that can be experienced, that there is a something that our minds cannot grasp, whose beauty and sublimity reaches us only indirectly. This is religiousness. In this sense, I am religious. It is enough for me to wonder at these secrets and to attempt to grasp humbly with my mind a mere image of the lofty structure of all there is. So um, the word mysterious in the first part of that paragraph is actually not well translated into English. It's das uh, Geheimnisvollen, right? Which in German kind of means that which is full of secrets or the secretiveness of everything. All right, Geheimnisvollen. So in my classes, I often teach, this is one of the little bits of philosophy I actually teach aside from you know, Kantian um, metaphysics, uh, is that science and non-science are two perfectly valid ways of looking at the universe. They're actually two different ways of seeking knowledge. They do not necessarily have to conflict. Uh, people will use religion against science, people will use science against religion, but really science and non-science can coexist just fine. Uh, Chris Impey, who was uh, mentioned on my thesis committee, he team taught cosmology to me and my colleagues, uh, my, my classmates years ago. His teammate was a Jesuit priest named Bill Steger who taught me theoretical cosmology while Chris taught me the observational side of cosmology. So really you can exist side by side. But what Einstein is saying here is in the sense that he himself, although basically an atheist, considered himself religious was that he, like those who sought truth non-scientifically, was inspired by this sense, this feeling of mysteriousness. And so in that sense, I am in complete agreement with you all. We are finite. It is enough to be finite and to quest for the infinite. And that span of infinity inspires us to be more and more all the time without having to be more and more all the time. But, but, but you make it sound yeah. like it's a, a kind of 
beneficial thing for, say, infinity to be mysterious. But, yes. but of course, the history of science is that we come to understand things more. And in mathematics, this is also true. I would say that, for example, one of the most important points to make about the sort of mathematical study of infinity is that there has been enormous progress and that we aren't confused about things that previously were mysterious. For example, even Galileo was confused about the, the, the sort of concept of two sets having, having different, he, he, he observed, for example, that the number of natural numbers is the same as the number of squares. You know, the numbers one and four and, and two squared is four and three squared is nine and four squared is 16 and 25 and, and, and so on. And because he saw that correspondence, because you could associate each number its square. And so he said, look, the number of numbers and the number of squares have the same size because we can match them up. But it seems in some sense that the number of squares is much less because of course most numbers aren't square. I mean, the squares are kind of spread out and there's all these big gaps between the squares as you go up, right? And, and so the point is that, uh, so he threw up his hands and said, therefore we don't understand infinity and maybe even actual infinity is kind of nonsense or mysterious. But now we're no longer confused about this point and Cantor helped us see that, well, this is just part of the nature of these infinite sets is that a set can have the same size as a proper subset of itself and this is just how it goes. And, and so there's a kind of clarity for these notions now, whereas the, under your description it seems like you were kind of happy that it was mysterious. But why should you be happy that something is mysterious? That's just another way of saying that you don't understand it, right? If it's mysterious, it's not fundamentally mysterious, it's just that we don't understand it yet. So let's look at it more closely, let's use our skills and let's, let's grapple with it and try to, to understand it, yeah? And history has shown that this is possible often. Thank you for helping me clarify what I was trying to say. You're exactly right. Mm -hmm. I am not at all advocating that we stop wondering. What I'm saying is that we should always keep wondering, just as you did, uh, just as you described. Galileo gave it up. Newton also gave up originally, right? He couldn't figure out how the solar system could stay together with his law uh, of gravity until other okay. people later on figured out if you use perturbation theory, you could explain why these complex systems can stay together. So I completely advocate seeking truths or seeking to understand that which is not yet understood. What I want to feel satisfied about and happy about is that there will always remain things that are not understood and we should keep going after them. And don't be sad that we can't explain everything all at once. Even if we, like Fred said, if we're done with particle physics and the standard model is complete, there are still many, many more mysteries left to go with. And I am satisfied with the idea to know that what I know is finite. There is so much more, an infinite amount of stuff that is unknown, and I hope we keep pushing at it and going more and more and more, but be happy with what we've got so far, always pushing for the future and knowing that there will always be something mysterious yet to go for. I hope that's a little I bit of the better. I hope that's a little bit more clear what I said. Thank you for giving that opportunity but, for me to clarify. I think you gave with one hand and took away with the other. I mean, <laughs> uh -oh. you know, it's like... Did I have a contradiction in there? Not, not a contradiction as much as I, I think, you know, Joel is right about pointing to the fact that, well, these mysteries, it's, it's a, you know, a box of secrets, okay, that we keep taking secrets out of an understanding. But the question about satisfaction and desire still looms large there. I mean, I can, be, I can understand that there are mysteries and I can acknowledge that and still say that I'm not satisfied with the finite. And the fact that our studies of the infinite 
You know, it'd be one thing if we studied the infinite and we just kept coming up with contradictions or nonsense. You know, if we, you study it and it just, and no one could agree, everyone come, you know, there's five different mathematicians, they all, there are a hundred different, they all have different theories and they don't agree. And it's just noise and it starts to look like poetry or it starts to look like, you know. That was a sly dig. Yeah. <laughs> but it's but, not. But didn't this I mean, happen, they do agree. Yeah, years ago, I mean, with the Russell paradox and the, all the, paradox, the, the antinomies in set theory. Except so they on. were resolved. Sure, but at that time, I imagine it was something like what you're describing and completely unsettled well, well, and the sure, foundations were the, totally that unclear. That would be the point. I mean, it was resolved. It wasn't like, oh, we just can't understand, let's give up. And what developed was something that is as, you know, even more accurate and precise. We turn to mathematics, and we say, like, I don't know, math, you know, mathematicians probably don't get dust on their telescopes, right? We and get chalk dust all over our bodies. Yeah, chalk dust on your... <laughs> So, so when it turns out to have this logical, objective, you know, universally agreed upon structure, then it seems like it's less and less of a mystery and that there's really something there. And um, I can acknowledge, of course, that my, my present you know, body, who I am, is finite. My present life is finite. But when I see this structure that seems to have as much truth in it as anything, and a structure, the mathematical structure of infinity, a structure to which even physicists turn when they try to articulate their theories, right? Then I think that that's the structure that must be the real one. Now, I don't know exactly how I relate to that structure, but I can use my thought to try to make arguments to figure that out. And so I'm, I'm a little worried about, if I thought it really is just a box of secrets, then maybe I should stay out of there. But if I keep going on, I see that I can understand more and more of those secrets, and they're not mysteries anymore. And so when I see the progress of mathematics and when I see physics turning more and more to mathematics to solve its own problems, then again, I think that the mathematical structures are the fundamental ones. And I start to think that maybe my capacity to grasp those structures uh, requires that there be some part of me or some aspect of me which is infinite too. I mean, I'm going back to that. And so I don't see that there's, I mean, the box of secrets and the box of mysteries just means today I don't understand this. It's not sealed off to us. Um, now, we are limited, of course, so maybe humanity will never be able to understand certain things, of course. But I, I'm, I'm happy with mystery, but I'm not happy with it being an excuse. That's, excuse I guess. for what? for thinking that there are things that we shouldn't try to understand or that there are things that will forever somehow remain outside of, the gra of our grasp. Well, that's a very different statement, I think, from saying, for example, that people who believe that their lives are finite, uh, that they are failing to, to understand and to reach for something which is really there because we know about infinite things, and so why shouldn't our lives be infinite? I don't see the logic in that sequence. Yeah, I wouldn't quite make that argument. Good. But <laughs> I mean, I don't want to say that my life is infinite, or excuse me, that my life is finite, and it's surrounded by an atmosphere of mystery, and that's okay, and I'll leave it at that. Right? I tend to think that, okay, my present life is finite, I can understand the infinite. Mathematics has these virtues that even physicists use. Therefore, I'm very suspicious that my life is only finite. 
But when you say my life is finite, you are using, you are saying that intellectually. Do you feel your life is finite? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think you even feel how you would be feeling five minutes from now. And I don't think when you were 10, I think you referred to this, you know, like child is different. It's because at any one moment, one doesn't really know, intellectually one knows, but emotionally one feels this is it. Where I'm today, this moment, this is where I'm going to be. So when you are 40 years old, you don't think I'm you intellectually may think, but you don't really feel what you're going to feel when you're 50 years old or 60 years old or 70 years old. So in terms of the emotions, it seems to me there is a kind of lack of finiteness. A lack of finiteness? Yes. Well, yeah, I would agree. So there's more an in, in, infinite than finite. Yeah, desire is infinite. So in mathematics and in philosophy, one often makes the distinction between the sort of actually infinite and potentially infinite. And I think it's relevant to what you're saying because, of course, uh, that many mathematicians and philosophers held that somehow actually infinite mathematical objects are problematic and don't exist. And we, we shouldn't ever say that we have something that is infinite all by itself. But for example, the natural numbers are potentially infinite in the sense that if you have a natural number, you can always you know, get a bigger one, and they're somehow unbounded, and you can keep getting more and more, even if you have only finitely many at one time. And so what you're describing is a kind of, I mean, to me, it sounds like the way uh, you think about uh, the way you live your life is kind of potentially infinite in the sense that uh, we, we think of it as kind of uh, not bounded, and one can always you know, extend a little bit longer or something. And so, as opposed to actual infinity, which is, I think, maybe what your perspective is, and so it's interesting for me to compare those kind of mathematical philosophies with the sort of personal life philosophies that you guys are talking about. Well, that, that uh, reminds me, especially speaking of this issue of finite or not finite lifetime, of something that I was very surprised by within the last few weeks. Uh, there's a highly respected expert on healthcare issues, Ezekiel Emanuel, who's the older brother of Rahm Emanuel, who ran the Congress for a while and now is running Chicago. And Ezekiel Emanuel announced that he felt probably it wouldn't be worthwhile to live past the age of 75, right. presumably based on observing people he saw who were over 75 and he thought, I wouldn't want to be like that person. And uh, a lot of people, especially anyone over 75, can find this very, very insulting. But what I found strange about it is, how would he have chosen that particular point? How would he have said, what are the criteria which say, that's the point when you, know, you should really get on that little uh, raft or canoe and just paddle yourself out into the water the way supposedly the Eskimos used to do? Um, it's, it's a very strange idea that you can somehow pinpoint it. So it was the absolute reverse of wondering where can you find infinity. I have found the exact precise moment of ideal finiteness. <laughs> and that seems at least equally problematic. Yeah, right. If, you, if you're going to pick the finite, then you have to pick a finite number. And you're going to say 75 years 
well, why not? And I figured, like, he's thinking when I'm 75, then I would say, well, why not 75 years and a couple months? <laughs> you know, and then keep... And so, yeah, that's a problem with the finite, you know, that it, that it bounds itself in a way, and yet you can conceive of more, you know. And if you can conceive of more, you're going to want more. And, and at least even if, uh, you know, thought in some sense has this demand for infinity. And then and mathematicians take this to the extreme, right? We can conceive of countable infinities and then uncountable infinities and, you know, measurable cardinals and mallow cardinals and wooden cardinals and these infinities upon infinities, which are, um, those are mind-boggling, you know? Once you get beyond the mallows, I'm boggled. <laughs> so what about the religious idea of eternal life or eternal damnation? or eternal paradise, or eternal nothingness. Right? Well, you could have, or you could are, have Are you sequence. cool with that? Don't, do, can we agree that that impulse to be infinite or eternal came originally from human beings' desire not to be done when we turn to dust? If that is the case, and, and we have, uh, for thousands of years now, rewarded those who will believe in uh, our uh, way of belief by saying, if you believe this way, don't worry, your life can suck now, but you will eternally be rewarded, right? And, and actually, it is a sufficiently compelling message that billions of people around the world today are perfectly cool with that. But they don't know what that means mathematically. Why is that idea of eternity, which is infinite time, uh, so comforting? How does it match mathematically with the comfort of saying, I don't know what that means, but I'm cool with that? If, in fact, let's say, I've never done this before, but let's say we were to ask a devout person who belonged, uh, it was an adherent to a religion that promised eternal life, shall we say, uh, for someone who believes in this religion, who adheres to this religion. If you ask that person, what does eternal mean to you? Do you want to be around for a Google stack years? <laughs> How would you like to be around during that period of time? Would you like to float on a cloud playing a harp with wings for a Google stack years? Right? Um, would you like to live as you were when you were 16, you know, free and happy, running the world, doing whatever you felt like? But, you know, in five billion years, the sun is going to turn Earth into a crisp, all right? Uh, uh, one billion years from now, not even five billion, one billion years from now, the sun's heat will be so great that it will have already wiped out all life as we know it on the surface of the Earth, all right? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Can people really grasp that mathematically? No, this is something that was created uh, sociologically, not, not mathematically. Uh, this, this is a great opportunity for anyone in this room to think about. I mean, created because there was a need to, to create it or was created as some kind of sociological rule? This is what I don't know. But it is conceivable. I mean, and it's not all, there are, there are obviously many different religions in the Abrahamic traditions. You often have that notion of an eternal life forever living. Uh, of course, in the more Eastern religions often have an idea of a sequence of reincarnations, which are each finite, 
right? And so um, I can conceive of those kinds of lives. But it, it certainly seems that uh, within world religions, generally speaking, uh, that desire, that yearning for uh, the infinite is, expresses itself. And I don't think one needs to understand the uh, stack of large cardinals, you know, these enormous infinities that uh, professional mathematicians deal with in order for me to understand, or an ordinary person to understand, well, I could live more. You know, I can understand what, that, you know, there's always a tomorrow after today in some, even if the sun burns out or blows up the earth, this is always, the physics is always so depressing. Um, you know, it's like, I can understand that maybe there could be a new earth, you know, a new sun, a new universe, or somehow, as, you know, if Buddhists tell us we get reincarnated in another universe after this one is destroyed. I can understand that there's another one, there's a next, whatever you say, a next life, a next universe, a next number, you know, a next higher infinity. Um, and so I think people have an intuitive grasp of that, and it's that yearning, that constant desire. Desire is always desire for more. You never desire what you have. You have it. You well, know, I'm, I'm happy. I, I'm glad I have what I have. I'm glad I have I'm, what I'm I have, excited. but I want more. I want more of what I have. I don't necessarily want more of what I don't have. I would like to have more of what I don't have, but you, you mean know. more wives? <laughs> I mean more time with my wife, right? I mean more nice dinners with my wife. I, I want more adventures and fun and just holding hands sitting on a park bench with my wife. I don't need to, to explore that other aspect. You know, what if I were holding hands on a park bench with someone who was not my wife? You know, but that's a social thing. I could, uh, depending on where I am and what society, I could be sitting on a park bench with many wives. Uh, <laughs> the bottom line Infinitely is... Infinitely many. Well, maybe. <laughs> where but do we need... <laughs> I will say this. You play infinite chess. <laughs> and, and here's where I wander into the realm of, of regular life, as a, departing from mathematics and science for a moment, right? I have asked myself many times in life, what is it that really matters to me? In the end, what do I care about, right? Aside from like my personal happiness and being able to eat and sleep indoors, right? What actually matters to me in the, in, in the whole long road of life? And in the end, I came up, if I had to boil it down to one word, it would be legacy. I would, legacy, L-E-G-A-C-Y. You mean your own, or? Yes, I would like to leave a legacy. And if I- long? Yes, and this is the question I don't have the answer to. I am satisfied, because I know I'm going, I'm going under the ground someday, right? But if I have children, if I have students, if I've written papers or books that people have read, I know that I will be able to go on, I will have left a legacy, and that will satisfy me. But at the same time, I know that legacy isn't going to last on Earth for more than a billion years before we're all fried. The Earth itself won't exist in five billion years at all. It'll be burnt to a crisp. So how long do I need to feel this legacy? Am I just satisfied that it's gone down to the next generation and that's good enough? Is it isn't not? the notion of eternal life as you were describing and the notion of legacy the same thing? Possibly. In this case, I am satisfied if I personally do not have eternal life, but no, my legacy lives on beyond but it, me. It, both of those thoughts underscore a need to do something beyond 
or have something beyond today. Exactly, Ed. And, and so this is the concept, the, the basis of the conversation that we've been having right now, right? Where I say, I am satisfied with my finitude as long as I know that I will continue to quest for the infinite. So this kind of thinking is the, really what led, I think, to a lot of the work in this topic of I infinite utilitarianism that was mentioned, because yes. the, the sort of fundamental issue there is uh, the sort of moral philosophers thinking about the question of uh, right and wrong in a situation where you're, you're making a choice of you know, the range of possible actions you could undertake, and some of them maybe have effects that lead infinitely into the future, and maybe, maybe one of them causes a certain pattern of you know, goodness and badness or whatever in the world you know, unendingly into the future. And another one has a different kind of pattern. And so the, the kind of philosophical or mathematical problem is how, how could we compare two actions, say, if this one leads to a certain pattern, this one leads to a good one. But it's not the case that this one is always better, but only sometimes better, and so on, and they go like this, and then you still want to choose between these actions. Which one should you do? Which one is the right action to do, right? And so this principles that people identified, and so on, and this led to this theory called infinite utilitarianism, and it's really quite interesting. I mean, I approach it sort of in my usual way as a kind of source of fun curiosities, really, because these principles, of course, every single one of them is wrong for some reason or other, which you can identify by describing a certain situation in which the principle says you should do one thing, but actually you can see from another reason that you shouldn't. For example, suppose you had infinitely many $2 bills, you know, you're stored in Hilbert's bank or something, right? And, okay, you're walking down the sidewalk and there's a $1 bill on the sidewalk. So you... Should you pick it up? Well, if you pick it up, then you have infinitely many $2 bills and one $1 bill. And so if you put it into your bank account, you know, so one bill in each room of Hilbert's Hotel or something. Then, now, if you compared one person who had a $1 bill and then two, 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 with the person who has only $2 bills, so it's two, 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 it seems like the second person is better off because, you know, they have all twos and the other person <laughs> has a one there. And so it seems from this kind of, okay, so this was one of the principles that was introduced implied that you shouldn't pick up the $1 bill because you would become poorer by doing so. <laughs> and, okay, so this kind of thing is quite interesting, but it's a, it's a little bit related to what you're talking about because you're worried about sort of this, what comes infinitely into the future and what should you do now so as to choose. And I think it's quite interesting and it leads to uh, uh, What's Pascal's wager too. That's right? true, I guess. So. What's Pascal's wager? Pascal's wager says is an old thing by Pascal who was a mathematician who was also one of the first persons to think about gambling in a rigorous way, right? Probability and statistics because he was, he was a betting man. And so Pascal's wager is this. It says, like, well, now Pascal, of course, was a Christian, so his wager was for heaven or hell. And he thought, well, uh, make a little box, and, and suppose I think God does not exist. Uh, or suppose, and I shouldn't put it that way, suppose God does not exist. Well, if I, be, if I convert to Christianity and I do good things, and if God doesn't exist, I really haven't lost anything. I just die. But if God does exist, I go to heaven and I get an infinite reward. <laughs> now suppose on the other hand, right, I think to myself, well, I, I'm not going to become a Christian. That's all crazy stuff. Then I, have a, then I get the other two boxes, and the one says, well, God doesn't exist. It doesn't matter. I die, zero. But if God does exist, I go to hell, I, and I didn't believe, I, you know, and my, my disutilities, I suffer infinite pain. So he says, well, you, you have a choice now. 
This, of course, is Pascal. He says, you have a choice now, either to believe or not believe. And the outcome of that choice could be either be infinite pleasure or infinite pain. If you get the choice wrong, you get infinite pain, right? So you might as well, I mean, this, and he's saying, you know, you could be an atheist for all practical purposes, but you might as well hedge your bets and, you know, go to church and, and at, least, at least try to be a Christian because at worst you get nothing. Right? Because at worst, you get nothing. You get, you get the zero box. God does exist, or God doesn't exist, rather, and you get nothing. So, but, but on the other hand, if God does exist and you converted, then you get in heaven. So, so, his, so Pascal's wager is a thing that says, right, um, even now you have choices to make that could have infinite. Um, right? and, and again, he doesn't say, well, Christianity is true. That would be a separate thing. Right? He says, if you're just betting, you don't know if it's true or false. But you, you have to make a choice. Somebody asks you now to make a choice, right? And just based on statistical principles, you should say, yeah, I'll convert, right? Because your, your maximal loss is zero, and your, you know, your maximal gain is infinite pleasure. I think Bill O'Reilly <laughs> made an con- argument like that I, yeah, in one I, I of his books surprised. a few years ago. Yeah, I don't remember the book, but I think he... I think yeah. he there's, a, there's an interesting... Um, shall we say, somewhat more finite version of this, <laughs> which I think, uh, I think people would come out maybe in a, in a different way. And that is, you know, there's the issue about global warming. Is it happening? And if it is happening, is it because of things that we're doing with burning fo- uh, fossil fuels? And the statement that I have heard made, which I agree with, as a matter of fact, is Suppose we're wrong. Supposing burning fossil fuels is not really contributing in a significant way to the warming that has unquestionably occurred, uh, then nevertheless, we still wouldn't have lost because fossil fuels are a valuable resource. And by preserving more of them for later use in something else than just going up a smokestack, we actually are likely to be Uh, beneficiaries of doing that so that it's just the prudent thing to do. It sounds awfully much like Pascal's wager but I have a feeling that most people who would accept Pascal's logic would not accept this logic and vice versa. (laughs) It's it's very amusing. But people accept this kind of logic all the time. When you buy insurance, for example, you're paying out a small amount because of a very remote chance that something, so you're giving, you know, you're suffering a, a small loss because you feel that this, you know, compensates for the fact that something terrible might happen and then the insurance would, would help you out and you'd be much better off. It's, it's essentially the same calculation, right? right? But I mean, there's many other instances when, for example, I mean, you can imagine, well, what's the odds that, for example, there's some wealthy person here in New York who right now is wandering the streets of New York uh, with a big wad of cash and he's going to give it to the first person he finds with a purple, purple polka dot on their hand it's very unlikely, but okay, maybe it's a some tiny, tiny chance that that's true. So should we all paint purple things on our hands just, be, just in case, you know, because we do, it doesn't take that much time. I could just get a purple marker. We could all do it. And, and then maybe one of us would get such money. It's essentially the same logic, right, that you're describing. Pretty and it's, much. And it's just as absurd, isn't it? I mean, of course, no one thinks that this is a good idea to paint a purple dot on your hand just in case. You've just, just refuted some... insurance. <laughs> 
Well, I mean, so we, we reason with such kind, my point is just that we, we undergo such kind of reasoning all the time, but it's a balance between how remote is the possibility or, or not. And the mere fact that the payout in Pascal's wager is infinite in the one case has to be balanced against you know, the chance that it's actually happening, right? And it's the same kind of calculation that you would go with my imaginary experiment. Of course, we don't think that there's anyone going to give you money just because you have a purple dot on your, your hand. It's so remote that it's not even worth doing it, right? And I don't think any of us are going to do it uh, just because I mentioned that idea. It would be absurd to do it. Uh, but meanwhile, with insurance, it's essentially the same kind of logic. But in the case of insurance, this, these are odds that we can know much better and have studied in actuaries you know, analyze these odds very carefully, and this is why it's rational to buy insurance, because those odds are calculated very accurately. Well, given the finitude of our time here, I think we're going to go to audience questions, so if people can line up, and please state your name, and please um, uh, try to keep your comments in the form of a question. Dimension six, not seven. Yeah, you missed one. Yes. Well, you could have whether it's filled with water or not. Oh, I see. No, I meant the way it's pointing is only two dimensions, not three. So, thank you. Yes. I'm glad you guys didn't pick I, up I on saw that you frown. I, I was thinking, oh, I yeah, did. okay. Yes. Well, I mean, I mean right. bring it Close in. Close enough. It's Close not seven enough. dimensions, only six. Close enough. All right, very good. I'd like to bring uh, uh, the, the related topics of neurobiology and knowledge into this discussion in the following way. Um, it was raised by, it was mentioned by Eric when he was talking about. Uh, if, is there a limit to what we can know? Uh, there may be a limit. Uh, you know, and you said, of course, there, you know, it's possible. Uh, the question that I'd like, however many of you would like to address, is what you think about that. Is, is there an inherent limitation to what uh, we can know? Uh, and if, there, if your view is that there is, especially for Joel, um, is there any relationship at all to uh, Godel? Uh, for example, if what we can't know is a complete knowledge of our own cognitive processes, for example. That's the question. Oh, I see. So let me, since you mentioned me, let me just start. So of course, there's a famous argument uh, based on Godel's theorem that somehow the human mind can't be uh, like a, a simulable by, by a computer in principle because of the incompleteness theorem and the argument says, well, you know, we can see that whenever we look at a theory that it's true that the, the Gödel sentence, you know, the I am not provable statement, which we can prove is not provable in the assertion, we can see nevertheless that it's true and therefore we cannot be running a, a computer simulation. Uh, I mean, or, or simulated by, by a machine. And I think this, this argument, this is, I think, what you're referring to at least a little bit. And this argument, I think, is not well accepted. And most people think that it's seriously flawed. And the, the reason is that, I mean, it's clear that what's going on in the mind is a finite process. There's, I don't know the number of neurons, but maybe someone here knows the order of magnitude of the number of neurons, and they're related in a certain way. And, and it's not infinite. It's a, you know, there's a certain number of, of neurons in a human mind, and it's definitely finite, and they react in a certain way with certain connections, and so all of this is completely finite, and in principle, there's no reason why those chemical things couldn't be simulated on a computer and so on, and, and, and it, it seems to just be uh, 
uh, refuted just on that ground. I mean, of course, I mean, as a, as a logician, I know also the step when you go from seeing that the theory is true to seeing that you can't prove it in the theory. This, this is the flaw in the argument. It's not really accurate. Of course, for some theories that we believe in, in and we, we, we can see that they're, that they're true, then we also believe that they're consistent, and so we can make that step. But after you've made this step an enormous number of times, it's not something that I agree that we can just see that it's consistent to go one, one more step. I don't agree at all with this, uh, with, with this girdle argument that somehow we cannot be simulated because of the incompleteness theorem. I think it's fallacious. And so then, well, how would you translate that to whether you agree or disagree with David Hilbert, though mathematicians know Hilbert and Hilbert space, um, where on his, uh, he gave this wonderfully concise and beautiful uh, statement that's on his tombstone as well. Uh, we must know. We will know. So that's the drive to um, uh, investigate the mysterious and the unknown. But my question is, do individuals here think one way or the other? Is there a limit to what we can know uh, whether it's about our, our own thinking process or not, just in general. Is the Planck scale, for example, the limit of what we can know about the structure of the universe, or is it <laughs> turtles all the way down? Is it, right? So though, that's the question I'm really asking. How you see, uh, is there an inherent limitation to what we can know in our quest uh, to know, um, yeah, or not? There are all, kind, there are all kinds of limits uh, into in what we can know. I mean, there are limits of our visual system, for instance, I, you know, uh, how many colors we can distinguish or things like that. There are limits with how far scientific instruments can resolve things, limits to our capacity to theorize just in, in all kinds of ways. But I, I'm not sure that that's maybe quite the question that you're, you're asking. I mean, so, so there's a certain sense in what's distressing, at least to me, is that I always think that I, however much I know, I could know more. And that's, that's a, that, and even if I see that there are limits, as much as I know that I have limits to my biological lifespan, right? So if, if maybe I get to 75 and I knock myself off or something, as, as, as has been advised. Uh, you know, there's, it's, it's, there's a capability of having more. I can realize that, gee, even though I'm limited, there could have been more. Let, let me answer you in a slightly Just different way. The sociological functions, I know, the last one I promised, that the sociological function that at any point in time, uh, our belief about what we know they seem equivalent. I, uh, you often have people say, well, I know that to be true, but it's really just a belief. And one of the beliefs that plagues this kind of investigation uh, throughout intellectual history is that whatever is thought to be knowledge at a point in time is often deemed to be eternal, right? It will not change. This is what we know. And if, if nothing else, the history of scientific discovery and, uh, proves that to be incorrect. That's what, that was my question. Thank, thank you. I think we're going to have to move on. But it, it, any you, final Stuart? response? To it? <laughs> uh, my question is directed to Dr. Liu. You stated, you stated, Dr. Liu, at the outset that most scientists today uh, believe in the Big Bang and are therefore finite uh, time since the uh, beginning of time. That's right. Uh, Many of your colleagues would take issue with that, those who believe in Andre Linde's theory of uh, chaotic inflation, mm -hmm. which implies infinite time, both forward and backwards, mm -hmm. and the multiverse, in layman's terms. Um, 
Could you please, now if you believe in the Big Bang as the beginning of time, could you please explain to us, uh, well, the beginning of time implies nothingness before the beginning of time. Could you explain to us your conception of nothingness and why that is more physical or uh, more intellectually appealing to you than infinitude? Uh, the fact that a Big Bang occurred or that there is a t equals zero in our universe today does not imply that there was nothing before. The understanding of people like Andre Linde that you described. It implies no. Not necessarily. You see, when you describe Andre Linde and, and say Steinhardt or various, not, not you, but uh, like other Steinhards. Uh, Better one. No, <laughs> the less handsome one. I don't know. Oh. Anyway. Um, uh, about cyclical universes or, or time existing beforehand, they do not suggest that the using the moment of the Big Bang as t equals zero is wrong. Rather, they say that there is ways to extend beyond that amount. And so it's actually not inconsistent with what I'm saying right now. You see, if you think that our universe, you count time from t equals zero, and we'll call that Big Bang, okay, for the sake of argument, or for the sake of just terminology, you could structure something beyond our universe which doesn't have our definition, our physical definition of time as a dimension, as say described in the general theory of relativity. But you could still have stuff that exists. So uh, Fred very briefly mentioned string theory, and I would love to get into that with you at some future time, but be satisfied with the understanding that modern astronomy and astrophysics and cosmology does not attempt to discount the existence of nothing uh, something. or something, but rather to explain how the universe as we currently observe it and experience it exists and behaves. If that's, if that's sufficient for you for now, we can go from there. Imply infinitude, whether it's time or another dimension. Not necessarily. It, the point is that what, we... What, what, again, to my right. original question, what is your conception of um, t equals zero? Right. My, because, you don't believe in t less than zero. What is your conception of t equals zero? My conception fundamentally is that there existed a t equals zero. And then from there, our universe has gone on. Beyond that, there is additional hypotheses there are speculations, there are thoughts, and I am not actually equipped to tell you what those things are, but I am encouraging people who wish to think about them, well, such as you, to continue to think about them, and perhaps we can set up something that can be tested scientifically, hypothesized and then predicted and then tested by some sort of evidence or simulation. Uh, that just because I see the universe, based on the evidence we have now, to exist in the way that it does, does not preclude at all the existence of other stuff before, after, during, regardless of how you wish to determine or define dimensions, time, space, existence, etc. Doesn't what you're saying imply infinitude? No, it does not. Not necessarily infinite time. Not at all as a dimension, but infinitude of some dimension or no, dimensions. No, no it doesn't. It actually does well, not. We'll have to leave this as a mystery. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Be happy to talk with you more about that. So um, with that, uh, maybe as a backdrop, I'm surprised given the sort of ontological direction of the conversation that um, 
there hasn't been more talk about sort of theoretical linguistics and the linguistics behind sort of discretizing the continuum and the implications. So what I find surprising is that there's nothing about the conversation of infinity that seems to be um, specific to infinity. Rather, it could be mapped that you've had onto imaginary numbers or the existence of zero if we go back 2,000 years. And the concept of a closure um, as necessary to support the conceptual machinery of discretized elements describing continuous surfaces seems relevant here, and I just want to, would, would like to see what that does or what you, how you would take that ball. Well, I would agree a lot with that because, of course, the question, uh, these sort of ontological questions about the nature of existence, mathematical existence or physical existence, they're not, they're not so much connected directly uh, with infinity. But uh, w one thing that you could say is that, at least in my subject in the research area of set theory, for example, uh, the, the mathematical uh, activity is, is beset with enormous problems of this nature. We don't know whether these infinities exist or not, and we can't prove they exist. And so what, what should we do? We, we need a kind of mathematical philosophy that will help us understand the principles by which we are allowed to make these kind of mathematical existence assertions or not. And so this is a, this is a way that it's connected, that it hooks up, I think, uh, in an interesting way. And of course, I mean, the problem is that that subject is extremely technical and so on, and it's not suitable for, uh, for a general form to talk about the precise natures of those different infinities. But, uh, and, and, and as a consequence, really, the subject needs sort of people who are expert both in mathematics in the, these concepts of infinity and also in the kind of philosophical questions about how do you justify these kind of abstract ontological existence claims and and one there the, one of the words he mentioned was closure which I think would would be stimulating right to the mathematician and to you I mean if closure is one of the things that if I believe in one and I believe I can add a number to a number then I might think that reality has to be closed under that operation and that all the things that that operation applies to if I can take a power set then I might think well reality has to be closed under this structure and as you start to look at closure, I mean, closure is what drives certainly philosophically a lot of arguments for infinite, infinite structures. It seems odd to posit a lot of stuff and then just say, but that's where it stops. Because you immediately have the question of why does it, I mean, like if I say, well, the biggest number is 57. And well, wait a minute, why did you stop there? Because that seems to violate closure principles. And so as you move to saying, like, let's keep striving for closure, then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and the bigger and bigger and bigger gets nastier and nastier and nastier. And that drive for closure, which I think drives a lot of the, somehow it seems to drive a lot of the large cardinal research. But it's very interesting that you say that because this is kind of inductive reasoning. I mean, there's two kinds of inductive reasoning. There's a sort of ordinary yeah. inductive reasoning is the, the reasoning process by which when you observe many, many instances of something, you conclude that it's going to keep happening that way. So we think the sun is going to rise tomorrow because, look, it's risen every single day You know that we can remember. Okay, this is inductive reasoning. You observe many cases. I mean, if you think about the sort of chicken getting up on the farm, you know, that the farmer's going to treat him very well and so on, maybe you get a kind of counterexample situation, right? But then there's another kind of induction that's used in mathematics, inductive reasoning, and it, uh, mathematical induction. And this is a, a mathematical principle, which is, you know, you can prove it. 
And it's not, it doesn't admit this kind of counterexample, right, with the chicken. Uh, and this is the principle by which, you know, if you can prove that something happens at the, at the number zero, and you can prove that whenever it's true at a number, then it's also true at the next number, then you get to conclude that it's true for all the numbers. Because you can see how it propagates. It starts out being true, and then it's true at the next one, and therefore it's true at the next one, and therefore it's true at the next one, and so on, forever, right? But now what you said is actually making a connection between, between the two kinds of induction, because you're saying that the reason we think that the universe is closed under some process is because we can see that when we had it, we can always add one and get a bigger number. And so it's a kind of inductive, I mean, if I was the chicken, I could say I could always add one more day. But it's not really true, right? So, uh, so the infinitude is baked into the rules of the... Right, so, but what he's saying is that the reason we believe the piano axioms is because of this kind of other kind of induction, right? right. That we can always add one more. Thank you. Okay, first of all, let me admit I'm out of my league here by some. But for the gentleman in the brown shirt, uh, yes, you. Um, if you haven't already, you might want to read Krauss's A Universe from Nothing, which, by the way, I understood maybe 30% of. That's more than me. That's more than me. <laughs> or, or me. Oh, well, maybe I'm exaggerating. No, Lawrence, Lawrence rocks, yeah, no question. As for your, just a couple of quick things, and I have a question. The, as for, I'm sorry, I don't know anybody's name. Charles Liu. Charles. Yes. Um, you use the word religion, um, and I think in the context in which you used it, it's probably not correct. The dictionary definition of religion is belief in a metaphysical or transcendental being. You spoke to metaphysical or transcendental, but you didn't um, define that as connected to a being. Therefore, I think what you're looking for is spirituality. And based on that, however, I think we should look into changing the dictionary definition, but that's another thing. Okay. Yeah, that particular definition wouldn't include, say, polytheistic religions. Say again? Uh, that particular definition would not uh, allow polytheistic religions. Say, or, if you believed in many gods, or Buddhism. Yes. Or Taoism, or, that's a, but, very, that's a very heavily westernized definition. But, but that's okay, we'll leave that, that yeah, aside. Yeah, that's all right. Yes. You, we'll, you, your point is taken, yes, definitely. Um, I think it was you, sir, who said if I can conceive of something, then it's got to be. I, I don't think I said that, but... Uh, okay, then... Uh, then I think I probably would have said that. Oh, okay. I don't know if I said it, but I believe it, so how about that? <laughs> In many dreams, we, cons we, we see ourselves flying, as an example. So we are conceiving of our ability to fly. And yet, no matter how many times I may have that dream, I know I will never fly. Let, let me answer Outside that. of an airplane. Can I answer that? Because actually, I, throughout my life, I had flying dreams, particularly when I was younger in high school and in college. And in my dreams, I was flying. And it was always very difficult to fly. It, I had to make a lot of effort to move. I did fly, but it was very difficult, and I had to like push very hard in my dream. And, it, and it, this went on for years, these flying dreams that I had. And then I realized one day what I was really dreaming about, and that was 
well, I was, I was on the swim team in high school, and I, I swam a lot. And the sensation of fl what was flying in my dream and what I had always conceived of as flying was actually physically exactly what it feels like to swim underwater. And I had to push against the water. And so just because you dream about flying doesn't mean that you actually are flying. I was really swimming in my dream, but I was conceiving of it incorrectly as flying. And I, I don't and think that conceiving, well, I mean, conceiving of something isn't the same thing as imagining it. And it might be a, that might be a little too academic of a distinction. But if I were to say that you dream of flying, if I wanted to, to go out on a limb, if, if I did say that that's conceiving of it, I don't, I don't think I would ever mean to say that I can, conceiving of something means it's gonna happen in this life, or it's gonna happen in this universe, or it's gonna happen in my apartment, right? I mean, I can conceive of uh, having a lot of things, I can conceive of having a lot of things that aren't gonna fit in my apartment, or of doing a lot of things that I'm not gonna ever do in this life. And so if one were committed to thinking that if I can conceive of something, then it, must exist, that would probably commit me to believing in a lot of things that are way beyond anything I can experience physically in this life or in this city or in this apartment, right? Now, of course, that could be false, but I mean, if one was to say that, because you said you were going to... Well, you said you would dream of flying, but you know you're never no, going to no, fly. No, 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 but I started with the fact that, and I had it wrong, I guess it was you who said, if I can conceive of something, then I can do it, ultimately. Ultimately. <laughs> Maybe not now. In another universe. In infinity. Okay. Oh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay, anyway, here's a very quick question. Uh, not an easy one, though. We always talk about the circle as opposed to the line. And the circle is finite. I, I beg your pardon. The line is finite. And the circle is infinite. No, 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 no. What? What? Line is infinite. Circle is finite. A line segment? Are you referring to like a a segment or, or yeah. just a part of a line, like See, a microphone? I, I think you're doing fine. Let, yeah, go on. Yeah, don't, don't, let them, don't worry about don't it. Let them, well, no, but that's a basic misunderstanding. No, well, keep, keep keep going on. I think you're not so far off. Just finish oh. your. What statement. I didn't understand. Well, assuming my original yes premise, and and even if I'm wrong. Um, well, because I defined it the way I defined it, I, underst I understood that the belief was you can go round and round and round and round in circles and keep meeting new, new ground, whereas I don't see how you could do that unless you had an infinity of circles um, rather than going around, because you're going around the same one, whether you're going forward or backwards, aren't you hitting the same obstacles or paths or whatever? And if it were possible to go back and forth, uh, for that to be infinite, then, then in the line, which only goes uh, so, so long, a finite line, wouldn't it be the same going back and forth that mm -hmm. you'd hit the same thing. In other words, how is the circle differentiated from the line? And, yeah. Okay. Well, I brought up the circle early, so maybe I should respond, but everyone else here can correct me. Um, 
The circle has the property that it has no end, but it's obviously completely finite. You can see the whole circle, and that's that. Now, could it be true that if you start going around the circle, then the first time you see uh, <coughs> movie stars, and the next time you see scientists, which is much less interesting, <coughs> or something of that sort? <coughs> of course, it's possible. But in any case, what is certainly true is that there is no obvious limit to the number of times you can go around the circle. Whereas if you have a line of a certain length, there's an obvious limit to how long you can go in one direction. If you add the idea of going backwards, then there's no limit. So they become equivalent. Thank you. <clears throat> Let me say something, uh, because I find it interesting about what you said, namely, in computability theory, there's this famous sort of unsolvable problem called the halting problem. And this is a, the problem of, given a sort of computing device or a program, you want to answer the question of whether it will ever finish or not. And, uh, and Turing proved that you cannot design any computational device that will answer this question. It's simply contradictory to be able to determine the answer to the halting problem. But if you think about computation, then there's kind of two ways for it to go infinite, for it never to complete. And that is, it could enter some kind of repeating loop. And this often happens with my programs by accident. Uh, so you can imagine a computational process that was kind of repeating. This is like going around the circle, right? It's just repeating the same state inside the machine forever, and it's never going to halt. And this is a kind of easy case of the halting problem, because when that happens and you can check, then you can kind of detect this when it, when it happens. And, and say, look, it's never going to halt because it's repeating. And we can see it came back to, to the same configuration. And so it's never going to halt. But the, another kind of more complicated kind of non-halting is when the computation proceeds forever. It never halts. But it also never repeats. So it's not kind of stuck in this loop. And this is more like what you're talking about, namely, it, it finds movie stars and then scientists and then you know sports people or whatever and, and I mean it was kind of metaphor for a non-repeating kind of trajectory right and so uh, uh, sure but And, and my, my point is that there's a mathematically precise way in which that's the hard case of, non, of the halting problem. So this kind of non-repeating case is, is much more robust. I'd like to ask about sort of the alternative, or if, if there is an alternative to thinking of time and space as infinite. I mean, how would you ever conceive of a limit, or how would you ever get to a point like, I think Dr. Lu mentioned with the Big Bang, where you say, okay, this is the beginning, and no, we know there was nothing before it. You'd live in a boring world. <laughs> well, I, I, think, I think there are several aspects of that. First of all, as far as being able to conceive of something as finite and yet not bounded, the circle is the perfect example. And you can generalize that, for example, to a sphere. And Einstein, when he originally started thinking Just cover them when I start. Um, OK. Uh, Einstein started thinking about, now I've got these wonderful equations of general relativity. Now what kind of universe could I have? And his intuition was that the kind of universe he would have would be a static universe. 
And now if, you, if it's a static universe, you could say, well, uh, is it infinite? And he said, no, the obvious thing would be it would be a universe which would be an analog in more dimensions of the surface of a sphere, the two-dimensional surface of a sphere. There's no particular point on the surface which is the end, any more than with the circle there's any point on the, on the circle which is the end. And yet, uh, and it has the property that it's the same all the way around. Uh, so he found a model he could make of the universe which had this property that, uh, and this is when he introduced what is now called the Einstein cosmological term into his theory, he found he could, he could make an equilibrium between things which were trying to make it get smaller or get bigger uh, and in such a way that it would stay at one size. What he didn't realize but was very quickly pointed out to him uh, was that in fact his model was quite unrealistic because the tiniest little perturbation would cause it to either collapse or to explode. And <clears throat> that's why, in fact, his model was not really a good one. And it's why later on he is reputed to have said, though nobody can find the exact place where it's recorded in the police blotter, uh, that this was the biggest mistake he ever made to introduce the cosmological term, which now appears to be there, actually, but not to give quite the universe that he was thinking of. So. So yes, I think there, there are ways to conceive a universe which is finite, and that's what he was doing. Uh, and that's also true of what we think of the observable universe today, but that word observable is very important. We could never observe an infinite universe because that would require some kind of infinity in time, and, and we don't have that much time to observe, most of us at least. So. Uh, so therefore, um, I, I think the reconciliation of the idea of finiteness with the idea of not having any special point anywhere in the universe uh, is perfectly possible. But the universe we live in doesn't appear to be that type. It appears to be one which, has, uh, which is uh, like a plane or a straight line but one where we don't see any sign of an end to it anywhere. Thank you. Good. Hi. Um, I just had a thought about Pascal's wager, and I wanted to see what you thought of it. Um, so this is sort of meant to be humorous, so I hope it doesn't offend anyone. But basically, um, if you uh, inflict a finite amount of suffering on yourself to go to church and pray and act religious and everything, and then at the end of your life, it's determined that there is no God. Um, is there any instance in which that finite amount of suffering outweighs the infinite amount of hell that you would experience if there was a God? Yeah, no, that's <laughs> right, right, right. So I could have gone out partying, but instead I, you know, I stayed home and, and, uh, and was very devout. Um, so... Uh, yeah, I think, you know, uh, there's, you know, it's an interesting, the, uh, the wager comes in many different flavors. And so Pascal's own view was that you, no matter what, you only have a finite loss if you decide to become, let's say, an Abrahamist, you decide to become devout. Um, you only have a finite loss of, of, of fleeting earthly pleasures, so, which for him was a, compared to the infinity of, 
pleasure in heaven versus the infinity of pain in hell was equivalent to nothing. Now, you know, he could have been, he could have been wrong about either one of those, right? But, but the, you know, the wager comes up in other ways. One of the stranger ways, people might have seen this occasionally, is Rocco's Basilisk, which maybe is, is something that, it, that uh, you know, people who think that, uh, believe in the singularity or that computers are going to take over the world. And so you have a choice now as to whether or not you're going to help the computers of the future evolve. Or are you going to fight the emergence of the, uh, the great computer in the future? And uh, of course, if you believe the great computer in the future actually will exist, then you might come to think that you're living in a simulation in that computer's mind now. And I've, I've done a very bad thing here, because as soon as you learn of Rocco's Basilisk, you're uh, guilty. So now you have a choice as to whether or not you're going to help the great computer of the future evolve or not. And since you suspect probably that it might not be nice to us, maybe you like the Terminator, you might be inclined to think that you shouldn't bring it into existence. And since you're probably inclined to think that you shouldn't bring it into existence, it's going to punish you when it does come into existence. <laughs> God or something. Yeah, yeah. Rocco's Basilisk is an application of Pascal's wager in like you know transhumanism and, and singularitarianism and Ray Kurzweil and there's been some nice articles in it. Uh, there's some things in the Times and some on Slate and it's a funny thing that people actually believe in. So Pascal's wager can be put in all these different contexts. But so you're right. There are ways to think of it that are other other than Pascal himself thought. But, Oh, your, go ahead. your question is great because I was thinking exactly the same oh, thing when I was yeah. talking about it. The answer is there, there are some infinities and some finitudes in which the finite thing is actually to you more valuable than the infinite thing, right? Uh, I think in, in the form that was described, you don't really see that. But I could imagine that, like, I could, uh, let's say there were a statue that was set of me forever or after I'm dead, right? Or there's a statue that's put up of me when I'm alive, and as soon as I'm dead, they take it down. Uh, which one would I appreciate more? Right? Uh, so that's the kind of thing where I would, where I would think about that. That's a really kind of cool. But that's a great question, because I was thinking about the same thing. But I think isn't your question just of the following kind of logic situation. I mean, you, suppose you own a house, and you buy a 10-year fire insurance policy for your house. And so you have to pay some money for this insurance. And then at the end of the 10 years, it turns out you didn't have a fire. So do you, do you say, darn it, because I wasted my insurance? Or, or, or do you reason, oh, I shouldn't have bought the insurance? I think it would be wrong to say that you shouldn't have bought the insurance because fire insurance for your house is a great idea. And the fact that your house didn't burn down doesn't prove that you shouldn't have bought it. It just means you got lucky. But and, it's essentially the same calculation right. I think you're and, talking about. And for 10 years, you were able to sleep at night knowing that if some, for some reason your house burned down, you get another one, which ain't such a bad thing, right? Yeah. But I want to respond to something you said, if there's time. So there's one of these examples in this infinite utilitarianism yeah. context is really interesting. because uh, So imagine that there's infinitely many people spread sort of uniformly on the lattice in all space, and that they're all very unhappy, but that there's a, an expanding sphere of happiness, that it starts out very small with only one person. But as it gets bigger, once you're inside the sphere of happiness, then you become very happy. Okay, So that's one world. World A. And world B is just like that, except everyone starts out happy. And there's an expanding sphere of unhappiness. So the sphere gets bigger. And once you're inside, then you become very unhappy. So now the question is, well, which, which world is better? right? Well, on the one hand, I mean, the, 
world B had infinitely many happy people and only finitely many unhappy people. So at any given moment in time, there's sort of infinitely more happiness in the second world than there is in the first world, which has only finitely much happiness and infinitely many unhappy people. So from that perspective, it seems like the second world is just way better than the first world. But on the other hand, from any individual person's perspective, of course, you'd much rather be in the first world because then at some finite point, you change from unhappy to happy, and then you're happy from, from that point on, right? And so, so the case is that every individual person in the world would rather be in world A, but nevertheless, there's a, a strong sense in which world B has infinitely more happiness altogether than world A. That's a nightmarish problem. <laughs> we have time for one more question. Hi, thank you very much for great um, discussion. Uh, when I came to uh, immigrated to United States, I had to understand how American society is functioning. And um, one uh, guy told me an anecdote, which is explained it. Anecdote goes like this: um, a question: What the number which is bigger than infinity? And um, answer. Infinity plus shipping and handling. <laughs> and that's explain me how, how this society and what, how capitalism is working. But um, I was a little bit surprised that uh, you did not discuss the limitations of language. In this limited uh, uh, universe, fin uh, finite universe, we have a finite number of symbols that we describe this universe. And in, um, despite of it, we still can make symbols and de define something that does not exist here and can imagine it. For me, it's, um, it's the question, how, why, with this limited number of symbols, we still can describe and imagine something that does not exist at all. Well, I think that's one of the, that's one of the uh, mysterious powers of language. I mean, we can do that. And you raise a good question. Um, how can we do that? I mean, certainly there are a lot of philosophers who say that as long as it, your description is consistent, then there does exist something that corresponds to it. And again, that might not exist in your apartment or here in this universe. Uh, so that's, a, I mean, that's just an excellent question, right? I mean, uh, and it gets back to the question that we all talked about at the very beginning, which is how do we think about what exists? How do we think about existence? And if, if one were, uh, you know, probably a mathematician, they say, well, if it's consistent, it exists. Uh, and many philosophers who are realists would say the same thing. Uh, but that would certainly lead to reality being infinite in, in probably every conceivable way. Well, let me yeah. say something, if I could. So uh, the logicians have a very... Uh, 
um, intricate account of the connection between language and mathematics and, and we have formal languages and different ones and we try to understand exactly uh, how it is that a language is able to describe mathematical objects and some languages are too weak to do so and other languages are strong enough to do some but not others and so on. And so I would answer your question by saying, well, we do pay attention to the language and in fact some of the infinite, infinity concepts in the large Cardinal hierarchy are described in precisely those terms. For example, there's a kind of large cardinal called the indescribable cardinals because they're precisely indescribable in a certain language, although they are describable in another one. And then there's the totally indescribable cardinals and so on. And so th this, th these are kind of mathematical, I mean, it, it, they're much too technical to give the definitions, except that they are using this concept of language and analyzing the power of language to describe mathematical objects. And it's all a part of the subject, really, is, I think. Let me add a little thing, which is when I'm teaching students in a physics course, one of the things I tell them is you're, you're going to have to learn that a physicist has no trouble putting on one equation, on one page, the same symbol, let's say the letter A, several different times with several different meanings. And therefore, having a finite number of sim symbols is not actually a limitation on the number of <laughs> concepts you can introduce. It's definitely not. Um, but then, given that we're getting close to the end, there have been several mentions of apartment. I think mostly Eric has mentioned apartment. I, I don't know whether I should want to see what your apartment looks like. But anyway. It's too small. It, 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 well, that's, that's New York. It, it reminds me of something I heard not too long ago that Woody Allen was quoted as saying, uh, I don't want to live on in my films. I want to live on in my apartment. <laughs> right. Well, allow me to give the final word to, uh, to Hamlet, uh, who, uh, speaking of masters of, of another kind of language, and who I think uh, spoke uh, for many of us when he said, uh, I could be bounded in a nutshell and consider myself a king of infinite space were it not that I have bad dreams. <laughs> so please join me in thanking Joel, Eric, Alfred, and Charles. <laughs>